Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In faith, my lord, you are to willful blame. And since you're coming hither, have done enough to put him quite besides his patience. You must needs learn, lord, to amend this fault. Though sometimes it show greatness, courage, blood, and that's the dearest grace it renders you. Yet oftentimes it doth present harsh rage, defective manners, want of government, pride, haughtiness, opinion, and disdain. The least of which haunting a noble man loseth men's hearts and leaves behind a stain upon the beauty of all parts besides, beguiling them of commendation. Well, I'm schooled. Good manners be your speed. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. That was the Earl of Worcester speaking to Hotspur in Shakespeare's play Henry IV Part one, you have joined us for Act Three, and you have joined me. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. I'm Brandon LaBlanc. And we're so glad that you are part of this six part podcast series on Shakespeare's history play, Henry IV, Part One. You guys, welcome back. Um, today is going to be a little bit of a toss back to Act Two because Brandon said something really interesting, kind of comparing the relationship between two insurrectionists in this play and in a play, Julius Caesar, their relationships with their wives. I thought that was a really interesting comparison. And I want to go back to that, but I just want to kind of like set the table for what was going to happen in act three of this play. So the big picture is this is a history play and it's an insurrectionist history play. Very similar to Richard II, very similar to Richard III, very similar to so many of Shakespeare's plays. If he's obsessed about one thing, is Shakespeare, he's probably more obsessed about kingly power and the threat of an uneasy transfer of power than he is about really anything else in the world. And this is another occasion 
Henry IV, in which he kind of delves into that subject. So early in this act, Act Three, Scene One, there's a meeting in Wales, and there are all these conspirators that are talking: Mortimer, Glendower, Hotspur, Worcester, and they're going. They're already kind of planning on how they're going to divide up their territory once they take over the kingdom. The big threat to the kingdom, of course, is not just these insurrectionists, but it's the kind of failure of young Hal, of Prince Harry, to kind of step into the mantle of being the king. So Act 3, Scene 2 is King Henry's frustration with Harry about his conduct and his choice of friends. And then in Act 3, excuse me, Scene 3, there are only three scenes in this play— we're back at the tavern and Harry's being Harry and he's joking around with Falstaff and talking about money and Falstaff is being his big, funny, insouissant self, um, kind of right when we need Hal to step up. But before we get to that, I want to go back, Brandon, to something you mentioned uh, at the end of Act Two. I- I- I'd like to hear you compare these two insurrectionists from these two plays. So Hotspur from this play and Brutus from Julius Caesar. Hotspur's wife, Kate, and Brutus's wife, Portia, each suspect their husband's insurrection plot. What I, I would love to hear you talk about this, Brandon. Hotspur's response to Kate when confronted is pretty different than Brutus's response to his wife, Portia. Can we glean anything about Hotspur and Brutus's character based on their responses to their wives? Yeah, I think um, I think the circumstances and and the scenes are so similar, and yet the differences uh, are really what set the two apart, the two characters. Um, you, know, you have two men who both have expressed this perceived threat of tyranny, right? There's a, for hot spurts that Henry the fourth is, is becoming a tyrant. He's not doing what he's supposed to as the King, as far as the, the prisoners that were taken, we talked about in act one. And then with, with uh, Brutus, you know, this clearly is Caesar trying to move from being consul to being emperor essentially. Right. And, and in a way that's not uh, in accordance with the Republic. Yeah. Uh, but then you have a, a younger man, and an older man and, and a younger wife and an older wife. And there, and I think a lot of that is where they start to diverge. First of all, you, uh, with, with Hotspur, he's decided at this, by the time he's talking to his wife, that Henry is a tyrant and, and mm. has to be dealt with. Mm. Right. And when Portia approaches Brutus, it's because he's wrestling, he's wrestling with what to do. He is, um, challenging those who would say that, that they, that they should assassinate Caesar um, and questioning them right before that scene and then continue to wrestle with it. And then the, like you, like you mentioned, the way they respond verbally to their wives is so incredibly different, right? Uh, Hotspur mocks Kate. He denounces her. He says, I can totally trust you as far as you're a woman. Like he points out her womanly weakness and being able to keep any secrets of his. Whereas Bruce acknowledges uh, her, Portia's concern. He accepts her the credentials she offers him, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, calls in her an honorable wife, where, where, like I said, uh, Hotspur denounces her, uh, denounces Kate, and then ultimately Brutus acqui- uh, acquiesces to to tell her, um, and but then mm. gets interrupted, and so he he only doesn't tell Portia. Or at least we don't know that he tells her in in the text of the play 
because someone interrupts before they, but they're, they're able to get to that. And Kate, for her part, she doesn't approach the same way Portia does, right? She's, she comes in attacking. It's, it's funny that both women, um, start out with like, why aren't you in our marriage bed? <laughs> this is a problem. Mm-hmm. You're supposed mm-hmm. to be, there's something amiss here. Um, almost this denial of the marriage rights, but, but with Kate, it's a, it's a threat almost immediately. She threatens to break his finger. She demands to know she makes guesses and warns him against things. She's just guessing that she's speculating on. She's right for the most part, but she doesn't approach him in a way that uh, helps any. Um, whereas Portia supplicates and she gives her credentials and she even acknowledges the fact that I understand I'm a woman and I, you might not be able to, you might think you can't trust me, but I'm such a woman as Brutus would marry and the, and the daughter of Cato, uh, not the standard fare, if you will. And, and, um, and that moves Brutus, you know, and he's, he's somewhat shamed for, for not uh, honoring his wife as he should have. And interestingly, she mentioned that but when she tried to approach him the day before and he kind of waves her off, she, she takes his dismissal and just, and doesn't push it, but now she's concerned for him. And so I think you have, um, two men who maybe could have avoided the tragedy they come to, uh, with the counsel of their wives. Kate certainly is telling him this is a bad idea to go throw in, throw in league with her brother and challenge the King. And then I think, you know, it's, there's less obvious, uh, indication in the text, what Portia would have counseled, uh, though she seems, she seems to be to err on the side of, uh, of caution in a lot, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and so they could have, avoided the tragedy in, in, in Brutus's case, we, f- we find him more tragic because it's interrupted. And because we see him wrestling, he seems more, uh, this is hard for him to decide what to do to kill a King, right. Or to kill a leader in his case. Um, and so we don't have that same kind of, uh, sympathy. I don't think for Hotspur, um, because he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't do that wrestling. He gets offended and he, and he burst out in action. And once that starts happening, he won't hear anybody, including his wife. Yeah. Uh, where Brutus, we have a lot more, a lot more sympathy for, and that may be a difference in their age and their, and in their experience and in their wisdom. But do we know what the age difference is between Hotspur and Brutus? Uh, like, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased by how I've seen the actors I've seen play the two parts. Right. For right. sure. Um, no, I've seen, I've seen them. Hotspur tends to be cast young. Brutus tends but to be I cast think older. Brutus has a, like a decently aged son. Like, like he's a child still, but he's, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, maybe the, his son, mm-hmm. I think. And mm-hmm. then Hotspur and Kate seem to have no children yet. Um, uh, and his father's still around, right? Like his father's still the, the, the Lord um, Hotspur's is. Whereas Brutus's doesn't appear to like Brutus appears to be the, the senior per, male in the family um, and has been a Senator for a while. So. Yeah. It's interesting to me that Kate comes bearing like threats of physical harm and Portia arrives having done herself right. yeah. physical harm. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting. Portia having she's, she's cut her thigh and she kind of shows it. She uses it to demonstrate her fealty to Brutus. It also seems, now we're talking more about Kate and Portia than Hotspur and Brutus, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I kind of see each of the wives as kind of reflections of the best and worst parts of their husbands, if that's fair or not. Um, well, Portia even points out, you 
you married a woman who's the daughter of Cato, who's a woman of the strength of you, Brutus, right? So that yeah, by comparison, she's she seems as hot headed as he is. Kate seems as hot headed as Hotspur, but in it in for her own reasons, mm-hmm. um, there doesn't seem to be much um, temperance for either either one of them in that scene. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting comparison. A really interesting comparison. Okay. Shifting our gaze back to act three of Henry the fourth. Heidi, I'm going to ask you about scene one, scene one for those kind of uninitiated into the history plays might be kind of confusing. It's a long scene. It's a long argument. And a lot of the arguments for me, they slipped right by me. I'm like, why all of this cantankerous, these cantankerous words, um, why such an emphasis on Wales um, and England? Um, I, I wonder, I honestly just like, aside from this, the aspect of who is going to get about whether the territory is being divided up fairly, which is Hotspur's contention. He feels like his portion is not large enough. Aside from that, there seems to be lots of conflict, especially between Glendower and Hotspur. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can shed some light on um, this. It feels like we've walked into a family drama at mm-hmm. midpoint and we don't quite know what the family is actually arguing about. Help us, Heidi. I like that setup a lot for the question because I think what we have is uh, one of one of Shakespeare's most useful tools for getting into the history play is exactly what you just said. It's a kind of a constant comparison and contrast between the personal and the political, right? So you have an immersion into a family conflict because uh, Hotspurs, in, in the play, he, Mortimer is, uh, is uh, I think, introduced as his cousin, but in real life, it was his brother-in-law. Um, and uh, so there's a little bit of differences there, but that doesn't matter too much. Um, and then there's a family connection also with Glendower. Uh, and, and so there is this sense of, a family drama where we're welcomed, so to speak, around the table of a personal conflict, a personality conflict, as we mm. see between Glendower and Hotspur. Um, but also zooming out, there's a political conflict. There's something at stake for, uh, on the national level uh, and the imperial level uh, going on within this scene. Um, and, and that goes back even to the question that you brought up with Brandon, the conversation that the two of you just had about these marriages, Shakespeare loves doubles. He loves contrasting two things, comparing and contrasting two things and embedding that comparison within the structure of a play. Uh, And in Henry four, part one, I think out of all of his plays, does it the best, although every play has it. Um, And so here we have the political and the personal, the family conflict and the personality conflict verse, and also the political and national and military conflict. Um, And one feeds the other uh, back and forth within this scene. So we have Hotspur is uh, being brought to the table um, as kind of the darling or the apple of the rebel's eye, right? He is the, uh, the, the young knight with a bright future and everybody thinks well of him. And he has this honorable reputation to the point that, that in another scene in this act, King Henry, the fourth 
unfavorably compares his own son, Prince Hal, saying, I wish you were more like Hotspur. I wish Mm -hmm. you were more like Percy, Mm -hmm. right? So Percy's like the darling, the apple of England's eye. Um, And... Uh, and so he's being brought to the table for counsel and he can't stop picking a fight with the senior guy, right? Yeah. Glendower is, the, I mean, he's the boss and Glendower has this, you know, he, every statement he makes, Hotspur's at him, just like picking a fight with him and undermining him um, on both the personal and the military level. He questions every decision he makes uh, and he's just picking at him personally and criticizing him um, publicly. Um, and, and that gives us, I think, a lot of insight into Hotspur's character um, on the personal level. And then also kind of, and that it's the first, maybe not the first, but it's yet another kind of prick in his reputation for those of us who are watching or reading, who have been told what an honorable knight he is. And yet on stage, he's picking a fight with his elders. He's picking fights with his wife. He's acting like a hotspur, right? Which is Mm -hmm. named after he's acting hot-headed and unable to control his anger. And as we learn, that becomes his downfall, but his reputation, what what is, is in conflict with what seems, right? And that is another double within the play. Um, And then the other thing that we have in this scene is just a really interesting kind of national look at Wales and England, um, which I think mirrors the internal conflict of the play. Again, it's another double. Um, On the political spectrum, we have, and it's particularly poignant, I think, within the marriage of Mortimer with his Welsh wife, and Mm. Glendower is his Mm -hmm. father-in-law. And so we have this really interesting uh, another marriage doubling. You pointed out the Portia connection here, even within the play, in the internal landscape landscape of the play, Harry Percy can't get along with his own wife, even in saying goodbye, and they might never see each other again, and they're still fighting with each other, versus Mortimer and his Welsh wife, and they can't even communicate with each other. They don't speak the same language, and yet they have this tenderness and this love between them uh, as representative of each culture. Um, And so there's this failure to communicate within the culture, uh, and when Hotspur's around, it makes it worse, Um, but when with this married couple, it's better, it's sweet, right? And mm. so if I were teaching this play, this is where I would emphasize what in this scene, where do you see kind of mirrors of each other, doubles of things, and how can we have create a conversation about those kinds of doubles? And they, they get complicated, but that's okay. It's really interesting to delve into this with students and I think in um, as observers of the play. Heidi, off the air, you mentioned another double. Mm. Uh, and this is a, this double is almost like an inverted doubling between King Henry and Falstaff. Can you tell oh, yeah. us anything more about what you see there, this kind of inverted doubling? Yeah. So if the question is, can I tell you anything about it? It's more going to be, can you stop me when, talking when, about when it? When did turn so the fast faucet off? How long off? are you going to talk about <laughs> it? Um, it's a very, very rich and complex doubling. That, um, so... And, and uh, I want to hear what Brandon has to say, and I'd like to maybe have a bit of a conversation back and forth about it with the three of us. But um, just to start us off, what we see in this play is Falstaff and Henry IV are, uh, they're 
both father figures to Prince Hal, warring or vying for Prince Hal's loyalty uh, and for Hal's kind of submission to their uh, range of values, to what it is that they want him to be, right? So um, in Act Two, we saw that in sharp relief with Falstaff at the at the tavern. Again, the place, the setting in this play are doubles, right? You have the tavern versus the throne room, like the, mm-hmm. the hall of feasting, the hall of uh, the, the place of, of drunkenness and um, debauchery uh, versus the place of like pomp and circumstance and state governed by these like dutiful kind of rules, right? Um, so chaos and order contrasted with each other, desire and duty contrasted with each other in a place. And if you notice in this play, Henry, uh, Henry IV and Falstaff are never on stage at the same time ever, which is brilliant on Shakespeare's part, because it shows them as these competing father figures, each of them representing these competing forces in Hal's psyche, right? Mm. So uh, we saw this with Falstaff when he says, Pick me, right? This is what the play within the play in act two was in the tavern scene when he says, I'll act like the king and I'll tell you what I think is Falstaff. And then I want you to defend Falstaff to me, right? And it's this really, really complex kind of circles of identity taking place. Uh, and in that scene, we already talked about that on the podcast. In this act, in, uh, in scene two, act three, scene two, we have we have Henry just berating his son for his failures to live up to his expectations, comparing him to Percy, who we've just seen act like a jerk, right? But that's not what father sees. What daddy sees is this young man, Percy, who's acting better than Hotspur's better than you. Why don't you act more like him? Why don't you fall in line with what I want you to be? And the thing that he, and so he proposes a really interesting idea to to his son, which is always do your duty, never ever show your feelings or be who you really are in public and act like I do, right? Fall in line, jettison any kind of life of desire of personhood and become just like me, become a mirror of me, right? And as we already know from the play in Henry V, in, in the last part of this tetralogy, uh, Henry, Prince Hal is going to become not the mirror of his father or of Falstaff, but the mirror of all Christian kings. Mm. But each, but both Falstaff and Henry in this play want him to become their own mirror, right? And so that is just creates this constant sense of de. de- disequilibrium within our main character within Prince Hal. Um, and it's really interesting the way he responds to that. So mm-hmm. I don't know, Brandon, do you want to add anything to that or well, any comments or I just think um, even where right here where we're talking about, you see this beginning of the rejection of that mirroring they want him to do. Right. And as you were talking, I couldn't, I, when I was reading, I couldn't put my finger on it, but as you were talking, it kind of came to me, he's called upon and does in or starts to in this moment clean up both of his father figures messes right you have the father who's his act the king who's who's a usurper and that's problematic and we know we've talked a little bit about that already like how he's wrestling with inheriting from a usurper right but also the king's paranoia in the first act drove pushed percy to to react right by by not uh but his well and he's paranoid at the, at the at the mention of mortimer and then you have this other father figure who got caught in his thieving and is 
when we left the last act was hoping that Hal could get him out of jail. And he does keep him out of, we find out in this act, keep him out of that, that trouble, but also puts him in command of, of a company of men. Like you're going to have to go fight now. And so there's this, this interesting, he, he starts having to be the mature one or to do the things to fix their, their, the problems those two men create um, even right here in this act. Right. And like you talked about the, the, the fullness of that, it, we don't, isn't revealed until Henry V, but it begins here as he's, as he starts his turn in the middle of this first play. You guys, is this, um, I think when I started reading this play, kind of knowing it was about the maturation of how I thought that we might get from Shakespeare kind of a story of the duties required to be king and kind of a growth into um, an enlighten, the enlightenment of how recognizing the duties that he needs to take on in order to inherit the throne and be a good king. I wonder if it's more of that or Heidi, do you think this is more of a story about the desire for a son to be connected to his father or to a father? It's both. It's both. That's what makes this place so rich. It's both the, it's about the education of a king. Uh, and, and that's what the whole tetralogy is, right? It is, it is what he's Shakespeare's asking the question, what kind of man is a good king? And, and he gives us in all of his history plays, uh, all specifically his English history plays, these kings as central figures and, and their failures and their foibles and their how, and their glories. And, uh, and he just hands them to us. Like, look at this, mm-hmm. look at this, Richard the sixth, who was a good man, but a bad king, mm-hmm. right? Richard the second, who was a, you know, all the, well, we've already talked about that. A great a poet, play, but a bad right? king. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Is it like, what does it take to be a good king? And in Henry, in Prince Hal, we have the mirror of all Christian kings. And yet mm. right now in this play, we have a dissolute young prodigal like carousing around uh, London with a fat knight, <laughs> right? How in the world are we, is he going to go from that to becoming the mirror of all Christian kings? And, and, and so what Shakespeare does in this fictionalized version of a real man's life is he's like, what if look at all of these competing forces that are fighting for this man's soul and, and, and his position and how is he going to resolve that? Like he is not afraid to put Hal in impossible situations. This is an impossible situation, both politically and personally for a young mm-hmm. man rejected by his father, who is ashamed of him, who's a usurper in an era of history who believed that the sins of the father would be inherited by the son. And also at a time that believed in the divine right of kings. This is impossible for Hal to become the mirror mm. of all Christian kings. He can't, according to the cultural and political uh, guidelines of the day, according to the belief system of the day. Plus, he's in this this political situation of being um, uh, of uh, of being attacked by a by a rebel forces, right? Um, in which some people would look at that and say that's justice because his father was a usurper. 
And that is just like a very, like those kind of outside and external forces, plus the internal force of psychologically what it means to be a man to be rejected by a cold hearted, distant father who was not mm. a good man. Right. And, and then to be embraced by this life of desire led by Falstaff. It is the classic duty and desire story for this battling for the soul in the position of a young man. Um, it's why it's such a psychological drama um, and and also political drama. It's just perfect. It's like nearly perfect. Um, and, and, and so we do have this constant competition between the father of duty and the father of desire for the soul of this this young man who also then has a double of his own in Percy who who does embody all of the proposed uh social virtues right he's a sense of Vronsky right mm. he has as we've been talking about over on the Patreon podcast about Anna Karenina Vronsky is this like empty souled person but on he has this veneer of social polish which makes him look like the perfect man but inside he's vacant and empty. And we have that in Hotspur as well um, as this kind of double to uh, everybody thinks well of Percy and yet he's empty on the inside. On the Mm. other hand, you have Prince Hal and nobody thinks well of Prince Hal, but he has all of the ability and the capacity and the potential and the, and the, uh, the drivenness toward on the inside. We already know he is planning to cast aside his image uh, and identity as a prodigal and fully own himself as a King. In fact, he's two steps ahead of, of his father because his father gives him the advice here in act two, excuse me, act three, scene two tells him, go ahead and go and don't show yourself too much to the people, kind of hide um, in the background. And then uh, because if you show yourself too much, it's like the sweetness of honey. And then the people get sick of you and they don't want you anymore. So he gives him this advice. He's telling him, don't go out and be among the people. Don't hang out with false stuff anymore, because then the people are just going to think you're a common man. You have to be more like me and be aloof and um, and cultivate your image. So use politics as theater. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Falstaff told him to use politics as to make, to, to advance Falstaff. Mm. Right. And, um, and, and he's, so Falstaff essentially says the same thing. Let's use politics as theater. And then the King says the same thing. Let's use politics as theater. But Prince Hal's way ahead of both of them, because in act one, uh, scene two, he says, that he gives his famous soliloquy when he says, when this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes. And like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation, glittering or my fault, shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. He essentially does exactly, he's way ahead of both Falstaff and his father, but none of them have enough faith in him to believe that he's capable of that. Mm. Interesting. That's beautiful. Those are beautiful lines that you found. Brandon. Yeah. I just, that's interesting to t- say he's way ahead of them. I, I think that the evidence is there in the text. And then at the same time, I think there's a real desire to um, be seen well in his actual father's eyes. And so there's a sense in which, in which that, that striving to, to, um, be honored by his father uh, to be worthy of his father's honor is what starts to shift him into the mindset of what it requires to be King, what's required of, of that person. Right. And we get that in, in act three, scene two, 
in his response. And he says, I will redeem all this on Percy's head. And in the closing of some glorious day, be bold to tell you that I am your son. When I will wear a garment, all of blood and stain my favors in a bloody mask, which washed away shall scour my shame with it. And so he knows that he has to go. Well, and he, he goes on to say that this will happen when he meets Hotspur, not when their when their armies meet, when he meets Hotspur, right? And so there's this accepting of there's something I have to do to 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 prove my own metal, um, and that's that's more per intimate than just commanding your troops. But then he does go on to begin that, and, and then he and he enlists uh, Falstaff in his saving of him. He puts him in charge of something, and his words to him are, "The land is burning. Percy stands on high, and either we or they must lower lie." And so he, he knows he has to risk and sacrifice to be the king and that, and that, and, uh, um, and so it, it's, it's both it, like, how do you think it's the both and right? It's, it's, it is very much, he needs to prove himself to his father, but in the doing of that, um, he begins to accept what it requ what's required of being king. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a sacrifice of self. It's a reduction of self in, in the pleasures and the desires, and, and one doesn't go without the other in this, in this work. So. Right. Well, and to your point, Brandon, I'm so glad you said that because he's, Hal is tormented. He's not just a King. He's not just a Prince. who's going to become a King. He's not just the Prince of Wales. Like he's a man. He's a, he's a, he's a, not a boy, but he's a young man who's has these father figures that are both seeking to use him to advance their what they want what they want right and you can see in him there's like robust humanity and this depth of emotion uh as well as a knowledge and an ownership of his own position and so psychologically it makes sense that he does become a prodigal like i don't buy that it's all strategic I also think it's human. I also mm. think it's a longing of this young man who knows he has to sublimate his humanity to his position from a father who, who earned it by, by deposition, or excuse me, who stole it, and also a father who has rejected him. To me, it makes perfect sense on a human level. I really don't buy that it's just strategic. I think he's nurturing a need. By going out and getting drunk with Falstaff. I, I, it, it's a very human response. Like if I have to give up my whole life for this duty that, that so far this man, my father has just rejected me and berated me for not for failing to meet his expectations. To me, it makes perfect sense. He wants to go out and get drunk with his mm -hmm. friends who think he's cool. So there is also a very robust depth of humanity, a pathos and a poignancy to the trajectory of Prince Hal's life, as well as there being a very strategic component of, of a leader who's thinking ahead and everyone's underestimating. Yeah. Go ahead, Tim. I was going to take us in a little bit of a different direction, Brandon. So I want you to give your point. I just, you, you get the sense that he's not um, this kind of, looking to increase his lands noble and, and somewhat Machiavellian in the way that his father and Hotspur and some others are uh, to your point, Heidi, like if, if he wasn't the Prince, you get the sense that he would be a poet or some great artist or, or something like he has this overflow of, of seeing the beauty of the world and, and enjoying it to its fullest that 
uh, is real for him. It's not, it's like you said, it's not just a show and he has to be willing to um, rein that in, in order to, to be the prince, to be the king. And it's just a like, there's this greatness to him that could have been something else if it wasn't bound to, 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 to this duty, right? It could have been something good even if it wasn't bound to this duty. And so it's because it is bound to this duty, he acts that out in a somewhat destructive way, even um, in that rebellion. Right. I was at my local coffee shop the other day and I went to the counter and one of the young women behind the counter said, does anyone ever tell you you look like Prince Harry? Meaning the current Prince Harry, like younger brother of William. And I said, no, no one has ever said that before because it's not true. I mean, I had a face mask on, like she had no idea what I actually looked like. And she said, oh, I think it's because you were standing under that red light and that he has red hair. And so your hair kind of, you know, lit up red. But it got me to thinking about something you said just a second ago, Heidi, that like, given Prince Hal from this play, Prince Hal's kind of response to his father, it makes sense that he would go carouse with Falstaff, you know? And sometimes... I don't pay that much attention to the current royal family, but I, I'm really kind of fascinated by Prince Harry, the younger redhead, and Prince William. They're almost, th- those two characters are like the two choices that our Prince Hal from this play seems the to be facing. The older brother and the prodigal. The older totally. brother and the prodigal. He can be, he's like teetering back and forth between each one. And... We don't really know which one he's going to choose. And to your point, Heidi, both of them are psychologically understanding. The desire to be the older brother, the approval, the dignity, the the power and the responsibilities that come along with that. The younger brother, the prodigal, um, nursing kind of hurt feelings from neglect, from feeling unembraced. You know, they just both make so much sense. And I think that we're going to see beginning in act four, we even are starting to see it now in act three, that Hal is kind of on the, he's standing between these two precipices. Precipice could no, it could not precipice? be precipice. No. There's no way it could be precipice. No, between these two precipices and he's going to leap in. It looks like he's going to leap into one or the other. But what I hear you saying, Heidi, is that maybe there's a third way for how. He has to find his way. Yeah. He has to, he has to unify them, right? He, he refuses to pick a lane. He refuses to become Falstaff's disciple. He, and he refuses to become his father's disciple. He is going to make his own way. And he insists on that. But I I agree with you, Tim, completely. There is every there is in this play, and I've read it so many times and seen so many performances of it because it's my favorite. And I I know this play inside and out. And yet every time I read it, I feel this sense of strain. Mm. Like this, this, like this teetering, as you just said, like the precipice is a perfect word. There's this, like, how does, how does a man and a king, 
Like, how does he, how does he do that? Like between these two extreme options and you just know it will be death to him if he picks one over the other. Most of us have a tendency towards one or the other. Like I actually don't find, and you always know this and you both feel differently. I don't like Falstaff. Mm -hmm. I don't find him appealing. I don't find his lifestyle tempting. I just, I, I find him like the gross fat knight. And I understand he's witty, but I'm not drawn to him. I'm much more likely to be like, do your duty, get yeah. your, get, get yourself in that throne room and start acting like your father. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. would be wrong. <laughs> that would be death to his soul. Right. And so would it be for him to be like Falstaff if he were to abdicate his role and, and try to make the, the kingship a common thing that takes place in taverns and the back alleys of London, that also would be death to on to the soul of the country and the soul of this young man. And so I think most of us, when we, when we watch the play or read the play, we pick a lane yeah. and, and Shakespeare is giving us two such extremes and then saying, and yet Prince Hal's got to find his own. We've got to unify these things. He's got to go to battle. It's actually Hotspur, who's his real enemy, not Falstaff and his father, right? And they're offering two kind of choices of one side of the soul versus the other. They represent the two fragmented parts of his psyche, but it's actually Hotspur who is the enemy here. Yeah. Yeah. It would be the worst thing for him would be to become like Hotspur, to have this veneer of success, but inside to be empty and immoderate and full of rage. Yeah. I'm listening to you, Heidi, and I'm kind of thinking about my younger self and I'm thinking about my, you know, the students that I've had that kind of like face this dilemma. Um, The dilemma being, are you going to lean into being kind of like the duty bound older son, the prodigal younger son and I know for me, the train ran back and forth between those two stations for years and years and years. And I just wanted, I kind of want to say to my younger self and like to students that I've had who have been on that back and forth train, there is a third way. And the third way is to kind of, it's to unify. Um, to use your phrasing, uh, duty and desire to make them part of a unified whole. And I just think that that is a, that's a harder task because um, the, the icons that we see, I don't mean the icons in the religious sense, but the kind of forms that we tend to see tend to be one or the other. It's easy to find a false staff. It's easy to find a King Henry. But I do think to be a king as great as how you have to unify, as, as great as King Henry V will be, there has to be a unity of those two forms. Right. Right. I think it's the journey of every soul, right? And kingship's the perfect metaphor for it, right? Like to, to become Lord of yourself, to become Lord of the realm of your own soul and of this, of, of this uh, relational world that we live in um, is, is to unify those things. That's how you become the mirror of all Christian humans, Mm. right? Like Mm. that, that, that is like, he's becoming a king just as we are called then to rule ourselves according to the image and likeness of Christ. And that is like, that's Hal's journey in a metaphorical sense throughout these plays. Um, 
And to do that, he has to do battle. He has to fight enemies. He has to protect boundaries. He has to reject. Um, and he has to, he has to, he has to reject Falstaff and he has to refuse to be obsequious to his father. Yeah. And, and that then is, that is his journey of unification. I think that's, it's a very metaphorical journey that to your point, I find myself in it, although I think it's probably maybe more overtly applicable to men, you know? Mm, um, mm. But I also see my own struggles and my own selfhood in this, but I, I do think there's something very masculine about Prince Hal's journey to, mm. uh, to, to manhood. Yeah. It's funny that you say that. Cause I, I, do, I think the thing there's something specific about that for Hal, but um, you know, I think we talked this maybe on the first episode a little bit, that um, not the hollow crown, which is these are about, but the crown, the TV show in that first season, um, there's quite a bit of conversation about, about the crown versus the person uh, for, for Queen Elizabeth. Um, and I think, I think it's her grandmother in one scene, like talking to her about, about that, particularly in, in that, in her case, it includes technically being the head of the church of England. Um, and so, uh, that first season wrestles with that a lot because she's very young. She's newly married. Um, you know, she's glow trotting as the princess at that point. Um, and she doesn't have the charisma of her younger sister. That's a big no, aspect. Doesn't of have it the also, charisma, right? Um, right. Huge, huge part of that, right? And and she didn't want it, and the younger sister would have wanted it. You find out in seasons later, right? And yeah. um, uh, and then also she wasn't. Um, she wasn't given the proper education for it either because she was mm-hmm. a woman. Um, mm-hmm. She was given all the pomp and circumstance part, but not the, here's how economics work. Um, and so she, she has to bring in tutors and school herself early in her tenure. Um, yeah. Anyway, but it's, it is a, it, it's interesting that, that, that doesn't go away when, in, when the crown uh, is going to a woman, it, there's a, there's a same element, but clearly in house case, there's some very different, expectations um, for, for a male heir and, and a journey toward manhood that can easily relate for those of us, even those of us who don't have to put on an actual crown when our dad dies. Um, I've got one comment to make, and then I want to ask you guys what you would be looking forward to in act four. This, this act that we're in now three is kind of this hinge act as so many, as the structure of so many Shakespeare's plays are, it's a hinge, and that hinge is Hal is deciding, okay, I'm stepping into kind of the halls of power, and I'm stepping out of the tavern halls. But I want to ask you guys in a second what to be looking forward to in Act 4. Just the comment, this is a personal comment, a lot of my work involves speaking to the presidents and CEOs of large humanitarian organizations, large nonprofit, large charities, and I've discovered, <laughs> I've discovered something, and it just makes me think of why Shakespeare is so obsessed with this question of what should a king look like? I think part of the reason that he, that Shakespeare is so obsessed about it is because, I mean, I think the king is to the nation what the CEO is to a nonprofit. And I'm seeing this pattern show up in my work. And the pattern is every CEO and every president that I talk to talks a great game, 
with one or two exceptions, they are eloquent. They are passionate about the work. They are um, just capable verbally. And I think when I started doing this job, I would just be so enamored of these CEOs. And I would think, oh, of course she's in charge. She's brilliant. Of course he's in charge. He's so eloquent. But the deeper I got into the work, the more I actually looked at the organizations kind of that followed the CEO and the president. And sometimes I would be even more impressed, but oftentimes I would be less impressed because there is so much more to being in charge than being eloquent. And I'm just seeing it over and over and over that kind of all of the things that are required to be a really good leader um, go far beyond your ability with words and your ability to form an argument and your ability to articulate a vision. Like, of course, those are really important things. Um, but when your organization is falling apart underneath you, <laughs> it doesn't matter how good of a game you talk. And I, I see that with, I mean, Shakespeare's kings are, and, and his insurrectionists are so eloquent and they are so verbally dazzling. I mean, Richard II, for me, Heidi, Richard II might be the kind of like, is it sine qua non? He is so articulate. Oh, he's just a disaster as a king. He's just such a poor king. So I, that's just kind of my little picture into why Shakespeare is so obsessed. Well, of course he's obsessed. His England is in the middle of titanic shifts and he sees how different England becomes from one generation of ruler to the next, from James, from Elizabeth to James. Um, and he knows enough of his history to kind of see, this is what happens when you get a bad king on the throne. This is what happens when you have a great king on the throne. So of course he'd be obsessed with that question. Heidi, what should we look forward to in act four? I, I mean, everything's leading towards this confrontation, right? Like Prince Hal has now joined the phrase, told his father, I won't let you down. I, I, you know, I'm going to allow, you know, the big metaphor of the play that we haven't touched on too much in these podcasts. Like we, I'm going to let the clouds dispel from under me and I will show myself to be, to shine with the light of the sun, right? Um, and I shall hereafter, sun, my thrice gracious Lord, be more myself. That's not I the sun metaphor, line. but be more myself. Yep. Yeah, be more myself, which is more truly even than he knows, right? Yeah, right? He's but to inhabit himself means to inhabit his role as king and to inhabit his true existential uh, being, right? And and so far he's divided. He's divided between duty and desire, divided between his position as king and his desire to inhabit the full humanity of the taverns and all that. And like this robust personhood, he's saying, I'm going to, I I will become myself. Um, and his father, but what in saying that he does not say, I will become more like you, dad. Mm. He'll say, I'm Mike, I'm going to be my more myself. Right. So that's just as much a challenge to his father as it is a, um, an acquiescence. Right. Um, but he's going to go out and fight. And on, on a moral level, on an existential level, and on a military level. And so that's what we're looking for. Um, we're looking for this fight. What's it going to happen when you get, when we get 
Prince Hal and Hotspur on stage at the same time. Yeah. And where is King Henry and where are and Falstaff going to be when that happens? And that that becomes then, you know, the the, the levels of the play. Brandon, yep. act four. I'll be honest with you guys. Act four of this play always just kind of runs right into act five for me. And I think <laughs> I think it's partly because it's a rather rather short act by comparison to some of the others. Um, but also because it's just this we don't get to the actual battle. Like we just left, like we're going off the battle, but then there's just this kind of tension building across these, these, these scenes. Um, Tim, you could probably speak this better than me, but, but Mike, I would guess that if, when it comes to putting this on the stage, this is where people start to trim some stuff out when they're trying to, trying to save some time. I think you're right. Um, but, but <laughs> Brandon, Heidi and I joke around about this. If there's an act that's going to get cut, it's act four, it's act four. <laughs> like almost every time. But I think, I was so thankful for what Heidi talked about earlier with the explaining that scene one with what's going on with um, Mortimer and, and Glendower and, and Hotspur, because um, I'm going to want to, I want to pay closer attention to how specifically that uh, those, some of the infighting there is, is ramping up tension, putting tension into Mm -hmm. the play and into what's the battle that's Mm -hmm. about to come Um, and understanding how, like Heidi was talking about, that um, political storyline mirrors the personal storyline. So this time through, I, I am going to be paying closer attention because I haven't in the past. I'm hoping I can kind of see a little bit with Heidi's eyes this time around on, on act four. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I just want to remind everyone that you can join the conversation online on Facebook through our sister podcast, close read. So if you go to, Close Reads podcast on Facebook. You're going to see a lively discussion, not just about this play, but about the flagship recording that's Close Reads. Right now, we are going into our final section of Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. And for Patreon subscribers, we are also right in the middle of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. So please join us on the Close Reads Discussion Facebook group. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods and via email by writing to closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. We are so grateful that you joined us for Act 3 of Henry IV Part 2. Please stay tuned and follow with us as we go through Act 4 and Act 5 of this wonderful history play. Thank you for joining us, and as always, happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.